Shalom. Welcome. Welcome. Um, I wanted to make an announcement before we got into the Word today. On our website, we do have a tab that you can drill down um, for prayer requests. And we've been having and receiving a lot of prayer requests from all over the world. And quite honestly, some of the, some of the prayers, some of the troubles, some of the turmoil that people are in, it really, really wrenches on your heartstrings. So we're going to ask you that if you're partnered with the ministry, that you would prayerfully consider joining the prayer team. And you can sign up online. And then when we do get prayer requests, then they can go out and you can be included in that. And you can pray and come into agreement and help intercede for people. And really what it does is it it just encourages you and it really shows you. And something I've learned over the years, if you're having trouble in your life, if you're having trouble in your marriage, then pray for somebody else's marriage. If you're having trouble with your children, then pray for somebody else's children. Because when we get outside of ourselves and we start interceding for others, then amazing things happen. So we see that in the life of Yeshua. And we pray that these people that have contacted us, brethren, would truly feel the power of the saints. Because that's what it's all about, isn't it? Isn't it? Well, I'm excited this week to start a new book. We're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews. Hebrews... And um, I just today want to spend the time just with an introduction. I don't want to just jump right into the text. I want to spend today with an introduction. And I fear that I'm going to be awfully long-winded. I'm going to try not to be. But I can't stand... Text out of context, because error begets error. And so many of us have listened to pulpit sermons for so long where people are ripping everything out of context. So I'd rather set the stage and the context today. But also, I don't want us to get caught up into thinking this is some ancient historical book that speaks to an ancient historical people that is divorced from the reality of the life that you and I are living. Because what you really are going to find is that what was going on with the audience of this book of Hebrews and the dangerous, perilous situation that they were in just a few years before the destruction of the temple in 70 of the Common Era, that you and I are in the same perilous situation today. And it all comes from something that happened back in the Torah, in the Old Testament, at Kadesh Barnea, and a 40-year judgment. So whilst we're going through this book... Do not think that it is just something that is shelved in many, many years past, but it is going to be your very life, my very life today. So as we spend time going through the text, we're going to see how it really does apply to us today, not only spiritually, 
but geopolitically and religiously with the other religions in the world. And we're going to see that this is most important for our faith and admonition today. So I I really am excited and I really think that it is the time that this book needs to be taught in a whole different light. Now saying that, I want to talk about the traditional approach to the book of Hebrews. Now, many, many years ago, not that many years ago, but it was quite a few years ago, the traditional Christian dogma approach to the book of Hebrews. I was an elder at Calvary Chapel, and I was sitting in an elders meeting with the pastor and all the elders around a big table. And it came up to the discussion of the teachings and instructions of Moses. And I started to shift in my seat. Because the conversation around the table was that the teachings and instructions of Moses, that they were past and that they were not applicable for people in the faith today. And I raised my hand. And I said, what about Matthew chapter 5, verse 18? You know, the go-to verse. And everybody looked at me like I was insane. How dare you go against the grain and question the pastor? Then the pastor turned with me, well, turned the scripture, and he said, no, 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 the law of Moses is done away with. Let me show you where. And he turned to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 13. And he quoted Hebrews 9 verse 13 to teach me that in fact, yes, the law of Moses is done away with. A new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And I said, but pastor, covenant is in italics. Everybody started to draw away from me. <laughs> My heart began to pound. And I, I thought, I have to press on. Covenant is in italics. I don't know if you guys realize, but that means it's not in the text. It's been added by some translator who was monkeying around with the text, giving you their interpretation. I believe the context bears out that there is a transference of priesthood And that the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, is growing old near the destruction of the temple, which is about to come and is going to be vanishing away. Do you know that was the last time I set foot in a traditional church setting and I was given the right foot of fellowship? And that's okay. (laughs) And that's okay. But you see, we start to question and we look at the Scripture and we should be a people that think and that we challenge the status quo. Because unless we challenge the status quo, we're going to be nothing more than a bunch of lemmings led to the slaughter. 
by the religious hierarchy of the day. And we live in a religious, political, military world, don't we? And unless we question what they're doing, we will then follow in with the masses and be led to the slaughter. So the traditional Christian approach is, of course, the book of Hebrews teaches that there's an old covenant that was nailed to the cross, and now that we're in the new covenant. I'm not going to be teaching the book of Hebrews with that interpretation because I understand that covenant many times in this book is in an in fact, in italics, I believe the context is going to bear out a juxtaposition between the priesthood of Levi, what's called the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood, and the transition into the Malchizedek priesthood, the new priesthood, which of course is the greater. So the interpretation that I'm going to give on the text right up front, I believe, is going to be very different. Then also, in more recent times, another interpretation of the book of the Hebrews, many of you will be familiar with, that a prominent messianic teacher actually ended up denying the inspiration of the book of Hebrews and actually called the writer of the book of Hebrews a liar... And that was based upon a reading of the Masoretic text only. Now, the Masoretic text is a very recent text. It was written in around 900 of the Common Era. But we'll find that the book of Hebrews actually pulls from a far more ancient text, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the ancient Hebrew which was written by 70, some say 72, rabbis. So it's a very weighty text. In fact, the Septuagint comes from the ancient Hebrew that we don't have in circulation today until they found many documents at the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's another thing that, of course, we have to work with. So we're not going to be denying the inspiration of the book of Hebrews based upon the Masoretic text. Our source text is going to be the Septuagint, which is a very weighty text, the Greek translation of the ancient Hebrew, the Hebrew that was in circulation about 200 years before Yeshua, that is testified by 70 rabbis, some say 72. I always say 70 in excess, just to clear up that confusion. So it's a very weighty text, but we'll also be looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls too. Now, to counter the gentleman that came out and denied the inspiration of the book of Hebrews and said the writer of the book of Hebrews was a liar, another prominent messianic teacher came out with a rebuttal, which was a phenomenal rebuttal, and many are familiar with that, which came out several years ago, which again brings the source text of the Septuagint to light and clears up all of those translation problems that you would find if you just stuck with the Masoretic text. And finally, another big ministry came out and was trying to do damage control with that whole debacle and came out with kind of this hybrid, high church slash really Jewish messianic interpretation of Hebrews that just kind of really greeked me out. So... 
Those are some of the common interpretations that people have seen most probably in the past years or been familiar with from an evangelical or church background. So just wanted to bring those ways that people have commonly approached the book of Hebrews just to say, I'm not going to do that. So I do hope that as we journey through this together, we will learn very much new approach to the Scriptures. In fact, in light of us understanding the Malki, King, Zedek, righteous priesthood, where I think we're going to see a lot come forward in this book of Hebrews. So let's start off with the theme. What's the theme of the book of Hebrews? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1 if you want to. If you want to take some notes, then please do. It's one of the most pro-Torah texts in the whole of the New Testament, the Brit Hadashah. Let's be clear. The ministry of the New Testament, or the Brit Hadashah, what it did is it initiated Yeshua's priesthood. And it is a better ministry... We find it is a better ministry than the ministry that was in the time of Moses. And this book makes that very clear. The book of Hebrews and its references to first. You'll see this reference to first that comes up many times. And what it's talking about oftentimes is it's juxtaposing priesthoods. The Levitical priesthood and the Malkitzedic priesthood, but it's also sometimes juxtaposing the first covenant that was mediated through Moses and the new covenant which was mediated through Yeshua, one being greater and one being better. What we need to understand with the old covenant, I don't like to use that term very often, but I will because I think we have a mature audience, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, what we really have to understand is that both of these covenants had mediation in them. The covenant through Moses, yes, it had mediation through it. Moses mediated, and who did he mediate? He mediated between Yahweh and the 12 tribes of Israel for a covering of sin, whereas Yeshua mediates between the house of Israel and the strangers, the foreigners that want to join, and Yahweh, and he mediates not a covering for sin, but a what? A full encompassing atonement for sin. So there's a distinction, a temporary covering, and we're going to find here with the actual removal of sin, which comes with our faith in Yeshua the removal of sin. It's not a covering, but it is a final removal so that we can be sanctified. So what's very important is the principal Old Testament quotations that we're going to find in this book are not isolated proof texts, but they actually carry their contexts with them. So when the writer of the book of Hebrews quotes something from the Tanakh, the Old Testament, they're not isolated proof texts. You have to realize that the context of what they're quoting back in the Old Testament, that's carried forward. Case in point, Psalm 45, verses um, 7 and 8. You'll see this in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. The writer of Hebrews, he quotes Psalm 45, verses 7 and 8. What's the context of Psalm 45? 
Well, that is not an isolated proof text. Whatever the context is, that is carried forward and it has to be applied. That is very important that we understand that because we're going to see a lot of Old Testament texts being quoted. And we find in Psalm 45, verse 7 and 8, the context of deity in the psalm is meant to be what? It's meant to be clearly placed squarely on the shoulders of Yeshua. Deity. So you'll have the false religion of, um, I don't know, there's a false religion around that would deny the deity of Yeshua. Well, then how do you deal with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, that quotes Psalm 45? The context of deity comes forward through the writer of the book of Hebrews, and it's placed on Yeshua's shoulders. It's talking about Yeshua being deity. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's have a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. I'll, I'll quote it for you. But if the administration of death, the administration of death, written and engraved in stones, was full of so much glory, then the house of Israel could not behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was not lasting. Why then should not the administration of the Spirit be even more glorious? For if the administration of condemnation was with glory... Much more does the administration of righteousness exceed in glory. This is juxtaposing what? The book of the law, which was an administration of condemnation. They were condemned because they broke the covenant and they sinned with the golden calf. So what Moshe mediated for Israel and the people, it was a ministry of what? condemnation. They were condemned in their sins, and their sins were covered, but they were not fully forgiven for eternity. Whereas now the writer of Hebrews tells us that this administration is what? Far greater, and this is what we're seeing written to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. It's extremely fabulous as we plow through this. Let's keep it simple. Yeshua died for our sins, not so that we not so that we wouldn't have to keep the commandments like Sabbath, the feasts of Yahweh, and the dietary requirements. That's very important. Yeshua died for our sins, not so that we wouldn't have to keep the commandments. That's insanity. But that's what's taught by the apostate church today that's fallen away. Just as it says in the book of Revelation, it would happen. So Yeshua is our eternal sacrifice. He's our eternal priesthood. And he's our what? Eternal temple, right? Because we are the foundation stones, in fact, of that temple that he hewed by his hands. So what is this juxtaposing? Priesthood temple, and sacrifice. Yeshua's death has everything to do with priesthood, temple, and sacrifice. It doesn't have to do with anything about getting rid of the commandments concerning the festivals, feasts, Sabbath, and the way that we live and keep our bodies healthy, does it? 
Not at all. You see, so we have to take that as we go into the Word. The objects of atonement for sin are fulfilled and thus transferred to the highest order by Yeshua. Keeping Sabbath, observing the feasts, and keeping the dietary requirements, and so forth and so on, has nothing to do with atonement for sin, does it? Absolutely nothing to do with atonement for sin. And that's where the apostate church is in trouble. Because they use it as license to do whatever they want. And in fact, what you really have, I mean, I'll come out on a limb and say that, is, is really you don't have the, the, the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Yes, many people meet on Sunday, but in reality, what it is, it's the CEO of a 501c3 having a board meeting 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. I mean, that's re- really what's going on. It's a staff meeting of a 501c3 with the CEO. It happens every week, but that's not the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Does that make sense? Because if it was different, then the ministers would stand up and teach you about what's really going on in the world. But they're scared to do that because they'll lose their what? Their government status. It's crazy. It's insane. So therefore, the people are kept dumb. And we're the few that are saying, you know what? There's got to be more. There's got to be more in this faith that is real to us. So let's continue. So we find now that this is really talking about sacrifice, priesthood, and temple. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? That's the million-dollar question. So let's look at the author. Like I said, today's just an introduction, but I want to spend the time to do it right so that over the next weeks we can really understand what's going on. Now, the Eastern Church... They held to the tradition of Paul, that Paul was the author based upon the testimony of Clement of Alexandria from the second century. However, what I do know for sure is that the author is a second-generation believer. He's a second-generation believer, well-versed in the Septuagint, a person who didn't witness Yeshua firsthand. Whoever it was, they didn't witness Yeshua firsthand, so it can't be Paul, and it can't be any of the 12 disciples. How do I know that? Chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Master himself and was confirmed to us by them that heard him? meaning the author didn't hear. And that would include Paul on the road to Damascus clearly heard the voice of the master. So our writer did not hear the voice of the master. So it couldn't have been the 12 disciples, and it couldn't have been, as the apostate Christian church teaches, the apostle Paul. Because how many of you heard, Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Paul wrote in your... But right here... The actual scripture, not the traditions of men, bears that it cannot be him. Because he, Paul, heard the voice of Yeshua on his road to Damascus conversion experience that is recorded in the book of Acts. So, the author, though, we do know, was in Paul's inner circle. 
The author was in Paul's inner circle because he, or she, attests to know Timothy. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23. Know that our brother Timtaeus, Timothy, has been set free. If he comes shortly, I will see you with him. So the author was definitely in Paul's inner circle. And this is where so many churchmen, and I am not picking on churchmen. Please, please don't understand me. It's not the people. It's the religion that has strained so far from its scriptural roots. It's not the people. So please, I'm not judging the people, but at the corrupt system that is a part of our society. And I think we can all see that. I mean, the politics are corrupt, the religion's corrupt, and the fiat currency system is totally corrupt. I mean, I, mean, th- I think we, we are mature enough to see that. But it's not the people, because I do not despise the beginnings that I had in the church system. I learned much, but it's a question of maturing out of that because you're questioners. So we must remember to be graceful and compassionate on other people. So please, I wanted to make that caveat. So we do know this is where the traditional church gets hung up wrongly on Paul being the author. They get hung up on Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23. But what we'll find is Hebrews may be Pauline in character, because of the author's familiarity with Paul, but it is certainly not Pauline in composition. So that's a big difference. It may be Pauline in character because of the author's familiarity with Paul's inner circle, but its composition is extremely different than the letters that Paul wrote to the Romans, to the Corinthians, to the Ephesians. Character and composition, very different. We have to distinguish the two. And that takes slowing it down and thinking a little. Thinking a little. Now, there's others in history like Tertullian of Carthage. He suggested that it was, in fact, Barnabas who wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, we do know that Barnabas was a Levite which would have made him very familiar, would it not, with the Levitical priesthood and the customs. Barnabas had direct contact with those that had heard and seen Yeshua firsthand, even though he hadn't, in fact, witnessed Yeshua firsthand. Now, others, and I'm kind of inclined to go this way myself, would prefer Apollos. Because Apollos was a Jew from Alexandria, and he was very well versed in the Scriptures. Acts chapter 18, verse 24, it is written, And a certain Yahudi Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Holy Scriptures, came to Ephesia. This man was instructed in the Torah and the Halakha, the way of the Master Yahweh, and being fervent in the Ruach, he spoke and taught diligently the things of Yahweh, knowing only the mikvah of John the Baptist. 
So he was very familiar with the priesthood and the transference of the priesthood through the immersion of John the Baptist. So we find that Apollos, very convincing, he was highly educated with the Alexandrian texts, the Septuagint, highly familiar with John the Baptist's mikvah transference to Yeshua. He was an acquaintance of Paul. He was tutored by Priscilla and Aquila. And he was a second-generation believer to boot. So you can see why I might spend a little time wondering whether Apollos is the author of the book of Hebrews. The, positively, what we do know, though, is that the author is a Jew in the diaspora, in the dispersion, who's very familiar with what's called the Hellenized texts of Alexandria, Because what we find in the book of Hebrews is there's over 30 direct quotations from it, along with many indirect allusions to it. So that gives you something to think about about the author, doesn't it? Instead of just running into it and saying, oh, yes, Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, without backing up and going, well, hang on, does the text really bear that out? It certainly doesn't. Well, what about the language? What's the language of the book of Hebrews? It's Greek. Specifically using the Septuagint, the LXX, as a source text to quote from the Tanakh. There's no solid proof whatsoever of it being Hebrew or Aramaic. It truly is, I believe, Greek. And it's from the Septuagint. There's no evidence that it's been written in Hebrew or Aramaic. In fact, it is the most eloquently written Greek in the whole of the New Testament. It truly is. It's the most eloquently written Greek in the whole of the New Testament. That's why I believe it's directly to the Hellenized Jews and that society pulling from the Septuagint and many of the Alexandrian texts. So... A lot to think about so far, right? Well, where was it written? Location. That's important too, isn't it? Where was it written? Was it written in Italy? Was it written in Jerusalem? Was it written in Judea? Let's look at Italy. Was it written in Italy? Chapter 13, verse 24. Let's find the location of the book of Hebrews writing. Chapter 13, verse 24. Salute all your spiritual leaders and all the Israelite Kedoshim saints. The Israelites of Italy salute you. Well, closed case, right? Wrong. Because we're going to slow it down again. And does the text really say that? We need to look at some different translations. So the question is, two questions for you. Was the author in Italy or in the vicinity of Rome, assembled with a group of believers? Or was this message sent home by Italians who were with the author which would point to the book being a letter written from a place outside Italy by Italians home to those in Italy. 
Well, let's look at the New International Version. To those from Italy, greet you. Those from Italy greet you. So the New International Version tells you what? It makes you believe that they were in Italy and the composition is Italian. New International Version. The RSV translation says, those who come from Italy send you greetings. So that makes you understand that they were Italians outside of Italy writing back to those in Italy. Let's look at the American Standard Version. <laughs> they of Italy. You see, now my inkling is, if it was Apollos, then the they of Italy is a reference to none other than his tutors, Priscilla and Aquila, who were Jews from Rome, who mentioned him in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. So that would be those Italians outside writing back to those in Italy. Also note, Rome wasn't evangelized by eyewitnesses of Yeshua who heard him speak as this audience was. Romans chapter 1 verse 1 and Romans 15 20 tells you that the Romans weren't established by an apostle. So it's very interesting because what we're seeing right here is that there is a strong pullback to the temple sacrificial system. And this wouldn't be so if they were in Italy, would it be? There wouldn't be such a strong pullback to the temple and the sacrificial system if they were in Italy. So I don't think that they were Italians in Italy. I don't think that at all. Because as we read the book, there's an admonishment. Don't draw back to the temple system. Don't draw back to the Levitical altar and the Levitical sacrifice. That wouldn't be such a temptation if they were Italians in Italy, would it be? See? So we start to think, well, what about Jerusalem? Was the location Jerusalem? I think it's highly doubtful. And it's highly unlikely that no one heard Yeshua speak Chapter 2, verse 3. And we also know that as we read the text, that our audience, that they were known for their charity. They were known for their charity, 6 and 10. But the Jerusalem assembly was known to be poor. Acts chapter 11, verse 29, Romans eleven twenty-five, and 1 Corinthians 6. Um, 16. They sent contributions to them because the Jerusalem Assembly's known poverty. But we know that our audience, they were known for charity. So I don't think it was a Jerusalem audience because I do believe those in Jerusalem, somebody would have heard Yeshua speak. Does that make sense? So now we move on to Judea. I think they were Judeans. Because they were Jewish believers in Judea 
Galatians chapter 1, 22 tells us. Now, Judea was located, what? Just outside of Jerusalem. Now, the Judeans, they were suffering tremendous persecution. They were suffering tremendous persecution, short of martyrdom in many instances, at the time of the writing, and they were tempted to be drawn back into the temple system or abandon the assembly for the apparent safety of Qumran. You see? So I do believe that our audience are, in fact, Judeans just outside of Jerusalem that are tempted to draw back into the temple system for safety or to abandon the assembly of believers altogether, go to Masada or go down to Qumran. Does that make sense? So these are some thoughts that I've had as I've been working through this. So the next question that we have to ask is when the heck was it written? But these are all very important things, aren't they? We can't just jump into the Bible without going, well, who's the author? Who's the audience? When was it written? What language is it written in? What text does it draw from? So it's important that I spend this time because I believe that you have earned the respect, we earn the respect together as believers to spend the time doing this properly without charging ahead and me being up here trying to fill your heads with a bunch of nonsense of my opinion. The text bears it out. It truly does. Let's look at the date. Just prior to the temple destruction in 70 of the common era, the author would have mentioned the temple's destruction if it were after, and from the language of chapters 8 and 10, the temple service definitely appears to be ongoing, does it not? So I believe it's before the destruction of the temple in 70, because otherwise, if it was after the destruction of the temple, I'm sure they would have mentioned it, and chapters 8 and 10 seem to bear the language, seems to bear out that the sacrifices were still ongoing, and they were about to disappear because of the ominous threat of the Romans that was coming. Now let's look and try and nail it down. If it's before 70, what about 68 to 69 of the common era with the temple's impending doom and its impending doom would then be fresh in the mind of the author who's writing with the wars and the calamities that are going on in the backdrop of his mind. Or, and I like this better, it's possibly just prior, just prior to 65 of the Common Era. Because that's when the major Roman persecutions took place. Just prior to 65 of the Common Era. Because around 65, that's when the Romans just put the hammer down. That's when they put the anvil down and they really started the mass persecutions of the believers. And we can see that the Roman persecutions took place around this time, but they're not mentioned in the text. Now, we can see, though, that the author, I believe, anticipates the anvil of the Romans about to come on the believers. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For whom the master Yahweh loves, he chastens. And who's he going to use to chasten the community? None other than the anvil of the Romans. And he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure discipline... 
Yahweh deals with you as with the sons. For what son does the Abba not discipline? So I can see right here that the author anticipates what? That there is going to be the anvil of the Romans that's going to come down and chastise and discipline the community. I want to make a little side note now because I don't want us to get so drawn back in the history that we forget what we're talking about today. Because there's something that really troubles me. Something that really troubles me as I go through the book of Hebrews. I, if I have time today, I'll get into it. If not, I'll get into it more next week. But I do believe that I have to mention it because it's extremely troubling to me. And that is the 40-year period that is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. And it references in the Old Testament, Kadesh Barnea. What happened at Kadesh Barnea? Yahweh informed Moses to send the spies into the land. And they came back with a bad report. And because they came back with a bad report, there was a national, generational consequence that happened that was irreversible. They had to physically die. Did they not? Now, I'm not saying that this is a spiritual consequence. No, because Moses, did he enter the promised land? No. Do we believe that Moses had faith and salvation? Yes, he appeared with Yeshua. So, but what we do know is because of Kadesh Barnea, there was a 40-year generational consequence that meant that once they made cross the point of no return, that there was physical consequences even to a saved remnant that they were going to have physical death. Correct? Correct. The author of the book of Hebrews, he says the very same thing to his audience. He's saying, once you pass the threshold in your decision making, there is going to be a generational consequence that's going to come upon you. That even if you're saved, you will face judgment and physical death. They had, Yeshua had been crucified 40 years before the writing of this book. And at the time of his crucifixion, there was a national, generational accountability that went on the people that was irrevocable, irreversible. What was it? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They attributed the Spirit in Yeshua to a what? to a demon. So no matter what the Jews did, no matter even if some of them were saved, that there was an irreversible, irreversible, excuse me, judgment coming on the nation that would bring what? Physical death. And the author 
of the book of Hebrews knew that. And he quotes and references Kadesh Barnea and says, what happened at Kadesh Barnea was a national tragedy that no matter how much supplication or prayer it was done, it was coming Physical death was coming in judgment. Likewise, 40 years earlier, because nationally the Jews had come as a people and attributed the spirit that was in Yeshua to a demon, they crossed the line and there was going to be a physical judgment and death nationally. The only, only way that you could be spared from that physical death was to come out from the nation, be mikvahed, and enter into the priesthood. That was the only way. Why am I spending time emphasizing this? Because we cannot, we must not just look at this book as something back then. Because in 1975 is when things started to really pick up on a global, global level that escalated and culminated in 1979, which brings us right now, 40 years later, where what we did nationally, globally, as the United States and the United Kingdom is going to come to its fruition Within the next few years, it is done. It is decided. There is nothing that you and I can do about it except be immersed, repent, come into the priesthood through baptism, mikvahot, to be spared because there is going to be a physical national death and it's going to happen. I said it not because I want to go out on a limb, but it is extremely obvious when we look at what the writer of the book of Hebrews is speaking about, using Kadesh Barnea, speaking to his audience, and using and showing 40 years earlier the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We have to go back to 1975 and understand the Iranian Revolution. We have to understand that. We have to understand what started to ferment that is now at a full topping point that we saw in San Bernardino. We have to understand where it came from and that we sold out in 1975. It culminated in the Iranian Revolution in 1979. And it is a national tragedy because our government, the UK, And the United States has capitulated to politics instead of the providence of Yahweh. They chose politics instead of providence and there is going to be physical death. Now, we have to understand that in 1969 to 74, we had Nixon. This was a very bad time for the United States of America. It didn't get much better after Nixon was kicked out. Even his vice president was so humiliated that he left the White House too. So now you get your first president that is never even elected by the people. He wasn't even the vice president, and that was who? Gerald Ford. And he came in after all of that damage. 
And this is all now as the Iranian situation is starting to ferment with Islam. Because what happened at this point is we have to understand that the United Kingdom and the United States, they had propped up the Shah of Iran. The Shah of Iran was one of the wealthiest men in the world. It's so corrupted, so corrupted. And the Iranians were starting to now look more to Sharia law and Islam and the Ayatollahs because they could see how the United Kingdom and the United States had really troubled their society. And they were seeing what was happening in the United States, not only with Nixon, but then it started again and carried on with Ford. And then who do we have that came up a little bit later? None other in 1977 than infamous Jimmy Carter, who pretty much whatever was happening, he just made it happen a whole lot further. Faster, excuse me. Gutless through and through. Jimmy Carter, of course, we had as a president from 1977 to 1981. I mean, he's trying to do his repentance now by going around the nations and, you know, trying to be a saint, but it's done. So what we need to understand this is what? Forty years ago, almost, it'll be 2019, 40 years ago, nationally, we chose politics over the providence of Yahweh. And there is going to be a physical consequence to that. And that is why you are going to see Islam more and more and more because it all comes from Sharia law and choosing Sharia law and the mullahs and the ayatollahs over the United States politics and the United Kingdom's politics in Iran, propping up the, Shara, uh, up the Shah, which was an absolute travesty of any justice that we could have done as the West. And we have never been able to recover as the Western nation since that time. And I am saying that we need to get right with Yahweh now, because just as our author was telling them, look, you made a decision in Kadesh Barnea and it affected you nationally that even if Moses was to repent and the children of Israel were to repent, yes, they had spiritual salvation, many of them, but they still faced physical death and judgment and didn't enter into the land. Likewise, at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, 40 years earlier, nationally, they said that Yeshua had a demon in him and they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Many repented and they came to faith in Yeshua. But did that change that there was a national judgment that was coming upon that people and it was going to come into the fulfillment of 70 of the common era? No. Likewise, with us in 1979, we made a decision as people electing our leaders to choose politics over providence and we chose to put in these corrupt New World Order officials and the globalist Illuminati around the world, this global economy of war through violence and the inf infection of other countries, going into other countries we have no right to do. We chose politics over providence, 1979. We are at that very threshold that even if we are to repent, yes, we will find salvation. 
but there is going to be physical judgment and physical death in the nation of the United States at the hand of Islam and in the United Kingdom and Europe at the hand of Islam. So we need to make the decision spiritually to come out of her, my people, be immersed through water into the priesthood of Melchizedek to find safety. Truly consider this as we go on in the teaching. Didn't mean to spend so much time doing that, but I do believe it's very important that we have an idea what the hell is going on. Right? Crazy stuff, but you know. Let's go back to something a little lighter. Let's look at our audience. Seven things. Seven things can be deduced from the text about our audience, okay? Number one, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. They, like the author, were second-generation believers. How many second-generation believers here do we have? I'm a first-generation believer. We have some second-generation believers here. We have a few second-generation believers. I'm a first generation, the second generation, they're all in the children's group next door, right? (laughs) Number two, we're looking at the seven things that can be deduced about our audience. Number two, they were Israelites. We know this because they were respectful of the Old Testament, the Tanakh's authority, which is quoted extensively by the author, and when it is quoted, it settles a matter. That's very unlike the culture today. If you quote the Old Testament, it does not settle a matter. People go, well, that's nailed to the cross. We don't look at that stuff. And they can can continue to indoctrinate you in whatever they want to. We quote the Old Testament because that lets us understand the new. Right? It's really the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah, but we have an audience that's broad, so I'll use those terms. The third thing that can be deduced about our author, our audience from the text is they were believers because the author warns against going back into the Jewish religious system that was controlled by the Herodians. It was controlled by the Pharisees. It was controlled by the Sadducees. He calls them brethren, beloved, partakers of the heavenly calling and partakers in Messiah. The fourth thing that can be deduced from the text about our audience, chapter 5, verse 11, the readers have been believers for a long time, and now they should get off the milk, and they should get in the meat. And if you've been a believer for a long time, then you should get off the milk and get on the meat. And if you're a new believer, then you should be on the milk And we should help and take care and nourish and cherish and love the new believer and admonish them and don't try and shove a stake down their throat. It's not right. They'll choke and leave. I've had to learn that. I go along and I go up to people. How are you, brother? Welcome. And then I go like this and have a little... uh. And they run. It didn't work. 
The fifth thing, they are spiritually immature and they haven't progressed past the elementary principles of Messiah, chapter 5, verse 12. And that really is the Western believing culture. And that's what we've ended up seeing. We've found people are spiritually immature and they haven't progressed past the elementary principles of Messiah. The elementary principles of Messiah are great for the infant on the milk. But at some point you go, there's got to be more than just giving me the message about the crucifixion, resurrection. Not to diminish that, heaven forbid, but that is an elementary principle that even the Pope might understand. Possibly? Maybe. Six. The sixth thing is they are wavering in their faith because of persecution. They're wavering in their faith because of persecution. And the final thing that we know, they knew the author. They knew the author. So, fascinating stuff. The book of Hebrews, of course. The word Hebrews in the Hebrew, it's um, Ivrim means one who had crossed over from one soil to a better soil. Abraham was not a Jew. People have come to me and said, well, Abraham's a Jew. The the rabbis will say, well, Abraham was a Jew. No, he wasn't. Abraham was the first Hebrew. He didn't know a Jew because the first Jew was a son of Jacob called Yehuda Judah, right? So Abraham was a Hebrew. He crossed over from one soil to a better soil. He produced a crop. He was in fertile ground, and that's what we're to do. We have to look at where we've come from in our life, and we have to make a decision to cross over from the soil that we were born in to a better soil so that we can produce a better crop that will go down the generations. And that's my testimony, and I know that's your testimony too. We looked at where we were standing, and we said there's got to be a better way. Let's cross over from this soil and plant roots in a better soil. It's the faith of Yahweh. In the Greek, pros hebraos. Pros Hebraeus. So we can see that our audience, they weren't just rank and file Jewish believers, but they had many converts, in fact, from the priesthood itself. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of Yahweh increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied, multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a large group of the priests and others from the Jewish faith were obedient to the Nazarene faith, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. So the priests, they would have had more than a working knowledge and a natural interest in the ritual sacrifices and the language that we see our author speaking about. Now, their ranks consisted of many Zadokites that had come up from Qumran, followers of the way, former members of the Qumran community sect that also were known by our author. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, it is written, By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out, he crossed over, into a place that he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and he went out, not knowing where he was going, By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So we find that the audience, like us, 
They were awaiting what? They were awaiting the destruction of their culture. Now, you have to understand that since the inception of Islam, that over 230 million people have been slaughtered. You have to understand that Islam invented slavery. There's many African Americans that actually convert to Islam, which is insane because Islam actually invented slavery because we have to understand the continent of Africa used to be what? Christian. Turkey used to be Christian. Syria used to be Christian. Africa is no longer Christian, it's Islam. Syria is Islam. Turkey is Islam. This is what happens, a decimation of culture. And you don't think that that's happening to Angela Merkel's Germany, Belgium, the United Kingdom. And you don't think that the demographics, that it's going to happen here. You see, our audience was aware that their war was against their culture. We have many similarities with our audience. And as we spend time going through this book, I believe you're going to see and wake up to many, many things as we find that we also are awaiting the destruction of our culture at the hands of the world order of the day, just like they were awaiting the destruction of their culture at the hands of the world order of their day. And it was going to have the faith that they needed to get through that time. They were going to find themselves in a place with no operating infrastructure, no place to go, a place where no generation had gone before. And I believe that we will ultimately get to the point of no operating infrastructure, that we will have to go with the faith that is inside of us, and we will have to find a place to go in community. Because ultimately, if you're out there as a lone sheep, you will be picked off. So it's, it's very sobering. Our author, our author, excuse me, was definitely addressing priests from within the community and without around Qumran, the community, those who had already come to faith in Yeshua. But they were still wavering in their faith nonetheless. They were tempted to go back to the temple Levitical system. They were tempted to take flight with the upcoming persecution to Masada or to Qumran. The theme of Hebrews concerns the priesthood with themes from the sacrificial system, themes of angels, themes of the Melchizedek, themes of Abraham and Moses. The Israelites in the wilderness, we see. The biblical covenants, the Old Testament's men of faith, and the role of the covenant of Torah in relation to believers' walk in Yeshua much to think about as we enter into this amazing book. But I do want to clear up the urban myth. It is an urban myth. The urban myth is that 
all first century Jews were living in Israel and speaking Hebrew. The majority of Jews in the first century didn't live in the land of Israel. I mean, the Jews from Rome alone, they numbered 40 to 60,000. 40 to 60,000. Also, what we'll find is we're going to come across this rabbinical use of Kal Vechoma, the light and the heavy weight that's used throughout the text of Hebrews. So at this point, I can break and we can finish for the week. Or if you want to stick with me for another little bit, we can continue on a little further. What say thee, thou tither, holy brethren? <laughs> what should we do? Wrap it up? Was that a wrap it up, Brother Glenn? Well, I'm not, understand, I'm not understanding the sand signals. Woo! We've got somebody with a lasso in the back. We've got somebody there doing the movie camera. What do we have back there? Go, 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 go. All right. What's that? All right, okay. I'll keep on going then. All right, let's look at the background. That, not that background. Let's look at the background of the text. The epistle of Hebrews, it differs from so many of the New Testament texts in that while it ends like a letter, it certainly doesn't begin like a letter, does it? It lacks the customary opening salutation. And likewise, we discovered it doesn't contain the name of the author or the specific people that it's addressed to. You really have to dig for it, don't you? But what's really excellent, and if you spend time in it, as we will, you'll see the triennial cycle of the Torah reading, the triennial cycle. Let me explain that a little bit for you. For millennia, the Torah, the five books of Moses, has been read either on an annual cycle. The Jews today read the five books of Moses on an annual cycle. They get through the five books in a year. But some communities, they read the Torah on a triennial, a three-year cycle. We can see our author using the triennial cycle in the writing of the book of Hebrews. If we pay close attention, let's see if we can pick it up. In these early chapters of the book of Hebrews, we can see that it is based upon the reading from Pentecost, from Shavuot, in the successive years of the triennial cycle. When was the Malkitzedic book of the covenant given? When the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, came down at Pentecost at Shavuot. So we're going to see that the author knew and was teaching what we know and are in fact teaching today. Six things that we can see about this triennial cycle. Number one, in these early chapters of the book of Hebrews, we're going to see Malkitzedek and Avraham. Genesis 14.8 through Genesis 15.21, we see that coming across in these early chapters of the book of Hebrews. Then we find number two, Exodus 19. What is Exodus 19? That's the book of the covenant. And then we find the third thing we see is we see number 18. Numbers 18, excuse me. What happened in Numbers 18? 
the book of the law priesthood and the Aaronic authority. This is the triennial cycle reading. Then we see Psalm 110, which was reached at Shavuot in the third year of the reading. Psalm 110, of course, the Malkitzedek. Fifthly, we see the season between Shavuot and Sukkot forms what we know today as the diadeche, the diadeche or the way, the new living way in Yeshua. And many of you may have read, read that. It's available online, the diadeche. And six, what we find is this all telescopes together in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, with the enrollment in heaven and the new year theme of divine judgment. This is the triennial cycle that you see framed in the book of Hebrews. It's fascinating. Now, we're going to find also in the book that it has a Torah background. Six things that show us that it has a Torah background, okay? Bereshit, the book of Genesis. We find Esau is used as our example of a person who made what? An irrevocable decision. Who once having made it, he couldn't turn back. Once he made that decision, Esau couldn't return back, even if he cried tears, could he? The tears of Esau. It's a warning to our audience, and it's a warning to us today, not to turn back from the Malkitzedek priesthood. Because that is your only salvation. Because there is going to be a national physical judgment that the only protection the faith faithful remnant are going to find is in Yeshua, crossing over, being mikvahed, and coming into his priesthood because there is physical judgment that's coming. The audience recognized that. Those at Kadesh Barnea recognized that. And hopefully you and I can recognize what happened with the Iranian revolution in 1979 and Islam and what's going to culminate in 2019. But it all started to ferment in 1975 to 1977. That's why we're seeing this happen right now. It's very sobering, but I don't want you guys to miss this. I really don't. People aren't teaching this. They're not talking about this because it's not politically correct and they're frightened. But everything I have... It comes from Yahweh. I was dead and now I'm alive. I have nothing to lose. I've got nothing to be afraid of. But fear itself. It's what movie is that from? <laughs> it just came to me. It's from something I must have watched. Bloody New World Order programming there. You have nothing to be afraid of but fear itself. I don't know where it came from. What was I talking about? I was talking about a Torah-based background. The first, Stop it, over in the corner. Tim. <laughs> I was talking about a Torah-based background that Esau, he made an irrevocable decision. The second thing we find is the book of Exodus, Shemot. Two items are used for our example. Number one, the tabernacle. It's about access to Yahweh and the priesthood. Number two, the priesthood. It's about mediation between Yahweh and man. The third thing we see, the author of Hebrews pulls two things from the book of Leviticus, Vayikra. 
And again, we find two examples. The first is blood sacrifices. They're temporary in nature and a covering for sin, not a removal of sin. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, you have a removal of sin by the Malkitzedic priest. You couldn't attain that through an Aaronic priest. Hugely different, hugely different. And the third thing, we, the second thing we find in Leviticus, of course, is Yom Kippur, the portion of the sacrifice that is taken outside of the gate, which, of course, was the eastern gate, the Mount of Olives, and it relates to Yeshua. The fourth thing we find, which shows us of a Torah-based background, is in the book of Numbers. And again, two things we find from the book of Numbers. The faithfulness of Moses and the defection of a faithless people under his watch, which compared is compared with an even greater faithfulness that we should have to Yeshua, the Malkitzedek, and an ever-present possibility of what? You've got to watch out for the defection amongst your midst. And that's what he's saying. Be careful. Watch out for those that might defect amongst your midst and go back into the Levitical priesthood or try and find safety there. They'll try and blend in for fear of persecution. Be careful of another defection on your watch is what the writer is saying. And we have to be careful of that today. Because quite honestly, you, if you're sitting here, you're going against the grain. You're going against the religious culture and the customs of the nation that you live in. You're questioning the new world order. You're questioning the religious system. And you're going with your faith in Yahweh and the Bible itself. It's going to be hard. And the temptation is to defect, to draw back and go back amongst all of the big, happy, clappy congregations where you can just, you know, blend in and, and, you, and nobody really notices if you miss a few weeks. And, you know, you can all be part of the culture when they start to do the celebrations that are very cultural and you get all the hallmark holidays. You can be a rah, rah, rah and a part of that. But with us, you know, it's going to be different because it's going to be biblical and you're going to stand out like a sore thumb. It's very tempting, not for me personally, but for some, tempting to draw back and fit in with the culture. Don't do it. Don't do it. That's what the author is admonishing. Stay with it. Do not defect like they did back in the book of Numbers and like they were tempted to do with his audience right there before the destruction of the temple. Within this fifth thing, the second thing we find is the irrevocable decision at Kadesh Barnea and the refusal to enter the land. It's juxtaposed with their present circumstances and the possibility of his audience making an irrevocable decision that once made would bring what? None other than physical judgment no matter how much repentance was made later, there'd still be physical judgment. The fifth thing we find with this Torah-based background is the Malkitzedek. And the sixth thing is the remnant juxtaposed with the non-remnant. In the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the remnant believed what Yahweh said through the mediator who was Moses. And the non-remnant, well, they didn't believe. And what did they do? 
They followed idolatry. So we see that too. And we see that with the audience of the writer of the book of Hebrews. There was a remnant that did believe in the Malkitzedek of Yeshua. And then there was a non-remnant that didn't believe in the Malkitzedek of Yeshua. Are we finding that today? Same thing. Different between remnant and non-remnant. And finally, we're going to see now the three main pillars of Judaism. The three main pillars of Judaism are going to be spoken of, and our author is going to dismantle the three main pillars of Judaism and erect the priesthood of Yeshua. But first of all, he has to dismantle the three main pillars of Judaism. Can anyone tell me what those three main pillars of Judaism were? Angels, Moses, Levitical priesthood. And that's what he's going to start to do. First of all, he's going to talk about angels. And he's going to find that Yeshua was made a little lower than the angels, but ultimately is raised to glory. Then he's going to start talking about Moses and how if there was this mediator Moses now, how much more with this greater mediator Yeshua. And then finally, if the Levitical priesthood could cover sin, then how much more the Malkitzedic priesthood that removes sin. So he's going to dismantle the three main pillars of Judaism and erect the Malkitzedic priesthood. And finally, we find the seriousness of what I was talking about, and I am going to have a little time to get into it more, this gospel's background and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And this is how we'll finish up today. Because you know I like to finish on a really heavy, freaky note. <laughs> because what they did is they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And what it was was an unpardonable sin. And the consequence went upon that whole Jewish generation. That even though individuals could cross over, get baptized, mikvahed, and they could enter into the priesthood. And they found salvation once they stayed in the community. Yes, they had spiritual salvation regardless, but they found also physical safety within the assembly. But they were tempted to draw back. But there was nothing that they could do that was going to change the national judgment that was coming, was there? The anvil of the Romans was coming anyway. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. We'll finish up here and we'll see how the Jewish nation, those in Judea, the Jews, they blasphemed the Holy Spirit and therefore judgment was coming on the Jews, Judea. Then Matthew 12, 22 was brought to him, speaking of Yeshua, one possessed with a demon, a shed, blind and dumb. And he healed him so completely that the blind and dumb both spoke and saw. And all the people of Israel, they were amazed. And they said, is this not the son of David? But then the Prushim, the Pharisees heard it and they said, this fellow does cast out Shadim, demons, except by Balzivab, the prince of the demons. That's what they said. They're saying that Yeshua, he casts out demons, 
By what? Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. And Yeshua knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or every house divided against itself, it shall not stand. And if Satan, S-A-Tan, cast out S-A-Tan, Satan, he would be divided against himself. How then would this kingdom stand? And if by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of Yahweh, then the kingdom of Yahweh has come. It has come to you. Or else, how can one enter into the strong man's house and spoil his goods except First, he has got to bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. Therefore, I say to you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven to men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven to men. What they did nationally right there with witnesses was attribute the Holy Spirit that was in Yeshua to a demon. It was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and it brought a national physical judgment. That even if they were to repent, it wouldn't change the fact that judgment was happening. The only way out was individually, not nationally. The only way out for us is individual. Individually. It's not nationally. Nationally, we chose politics over providence and we blasphemed by stating that we are a nation under God and we chose the God's of this world. Look on the back of your dollar bill with the all-seeing eye of Horus above the pyramid and the new world order. In God we trust. That is not Yahweh. That is the Freemason, Illuminati, demonic culture that we have. Go and look at the, the, the architecture of Washington, D.C. Our nation has been sold out to the globinists and the satanic Luciferians. It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It ultimately is all around the oil economy. The Islamic nations, they finally got sick of it in 1979, and we had the Iranian Revolution. But it all started to f ferment in 1975 to 79 at its culmination. We are now at the tail end. 40 years later, there is a national judgment that is coming that is going to result in physical death. The only way out of it is for individuals to cross over be immersed, enter into the priesthood of Malkitzedek and find physical solace with the believers and the protection that is going to come. This is important that we understand this because we see in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 12, Therefore I say to you, all manner of sin 
And blasphemy shall be given, forgiven to men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven to men. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world or in the world to come. You see, Israel's leadership rejects the Messiahship of Yeshua on the basis upon the Spirit that they judged being in him. They called the Holy Spirit a demon. So the kingdom was withdrawn from them and divine judgment ensued, manifest physically by the anvil of the Romans. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the national rejection of the Malkitzedek whilst he was present and attributing the Holy Spirit within him to a demon. You can see the seriousness of it, can you not? Because of this, because of this, no matter how many myriads of Jews came to believe, it wouldn't change the coming judgment of 70 of the common era. Just as at Kadesh Barnea, the offer of the land was withdrawn nationally to a whole generation, wasn't it? It was withdrawn nationally to a whole generation. Here, the offer of Jerusalem as the city, as the temple, as the sanctuary, and the Levites as the priesthood are withdrawn nationally. Did you get that? It's huge. It's huge. The offer of Jerusalem as the city The temple as the sanctuary and the Levites as the priesthood are withdrawn nationally from the people. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, and there's people telling you, oh, go back to Jerusalem, go back to Jerusalem. Oh, the city of the king, go back to the sanctuary. There's going to be a temple mount up on, up on the Anatonia Fortress. They're not telling you it's the Anatonia Fortress. And hey, let's return to the Levitical priesthood. They're going against the very, very judgment of Yahweh and standing in the place of Yahweh, saying return to something that was nationally withdrawn over 2,000 years ago and will never, ever be on the table for negotiation again. Ever. Even if you have the tears like Esau, it will not change what happened. I'll finish up. Romans 11 verse 21. For if Yahweh spared not the cultivated branches, how may not he spare you either? See therefore the kindness and severity of Yahweh on those who fell. Severity, but towards you kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise also you will be cut off. Do you not know? Do you not understand? The offer of Jerusalem above, the millennial land and the Malchizedek priesthood, it is being offered to this generation, you and I, right now. It is being offered to us right now, the Jerusalem above, the millennial land and the Malkitzedek priesthood. It's being offered to us right now in this generation. That's what we're accountable to. You can't say that you're accountable to the revelation of your grandmother's generation. 
We're accountable to the revelation of this generation. And he is revealing the Jerusalem above, the Malkitzedic priesthood. And he is what? Revealing to us the millennial land. And I believe we will be that generation that will embrace that and that will enable to get us through what? What's called Jacob's trouble or the tribulation. Listen, we really do have to get this. We really do have to get this because it's your life. It's your very life. At Kadesh Barnea, the offer of the land was withdrawn from that whole Exodus generation. Then here... To our very audience, the offer of the kingdom was withdrawn from the generation of Yeshua's day. Then just as the land was re-offered to the next generation at Kadesh Barnea, wasn't it? They all died away and it was offered to the next generation, wasn't it? And they took hold of it and they went into the land and they took hold of all of the promises, all of the blessings. The wilderness generation, they accepted it. Today... If you and I hear his voice, the kingdom of Malkitzedek, it is being offered to those within our generation if we will, if we will accept it. Then we will be that generation that will walk through the tribulation. But if you reject it, then it will be removed from you and go to your children. That's why it's so important that we understand this. The only way the author's audience could escape the coming judgment of 70 of the common era, the judgment of the unpardonable sin, was to break free from their man-made Jewish religion once and for all, and they did that through mikvah. And the only way for us to escape the coming judgment that is coming is to break free from our man-made religion of this nation, that has been sold out and to repent and come into the priesthood and have a real faith and walk in the priesthood, the Malkitzedek priesthood of Yeshua. The Israelite believers, they were suffering horrendous persecution. And because of that, they thought that they could temporarily lay aside their salvation and return to Judaism until the persecution subsided. Will you and I think that we can temporarily lay aside our radical beliefs in Yeshua, our radical beliefs in what's happening around until the persecution from Islam subsides? Are we any different? You see, the author doesn't give us the, this option. The author of the book of Hebrews, he doesn't give us this option as this would mean the re-crucifixion of Yeshua And Yeshua died once. So we have to stand on what we have been revealed to us. And we can't draw back. And yes, you're not going to fit in with the culture quite like you did. But many of you have seen the damage of the culture, the damage of the apostate system upon your families and upon your loved ones. And you have one life. So make it count and be radical for the King of Kings by walking out this faith. It's an amazing journey. And this is not even chapter one. 
It's just an introduction. <laughs> Do we have any questions, any comments, and hopefully no cabbage? What? Oh, the microphone. Okay. We have nothing to fear but fear itself, President Roosevelt. Really? Oh, okay. I thought it was from a movie. He was straight out of a movie. Questions? Nothing. Look at that. Stumbfounded silence. Well, Father, we thank you, Abba, for your word. And Abba, we ask that we would truly marinate, Abba, on the words, Abba, that you have spoken through the writer of the book of Hebrews as we get into this book. But we do thank you, Abba, just for giving us the insight to be able to see, Abba, as we go down this narrow path that leads to life. I pray your blessings upon your people in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.